welcome to Golden Beer Talks. Thank you for coming. It is lovely to see you all. We want to begin and end with gratitudes as always. Gratitude first to the staff of the Windy Saddle. They turn down the house music. They provide great service. They pour our beer. They're awesome, and we appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Also to goldentoday.com. They sponsor our events, they help promote our events, and they help promote a lot of awesome stuff in Golden. So if you haven't been to their website, you should check it out, goldentoday.com. They'll send you email every day and tell you what's going on in town and when the lights are going to be lit and when the fun is going to be happening, when the businesses are going to be doing what they're doing. So it's important to check that out. And I'm going to start by bringing up our beer ambassador. He's going to talk a little bit about our beer and some doings around town regarding beer. Frank Blaha, Beer Ambassador. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Golden Beer Talks. I guess we're in our fifth year. We are in our fifth year. Um, so, so it seems to be working. And tonight, the featured brewery is New Terrain Brewing Company, which so far is still the newest brewery in Golden. And they're over by the uh, uh, Coors Industrial Park, kind of 44th and McIntyre area. And if you haven't been there, I encourage you to go because they have a beautiful facility, beautiful space, nice views, lots of indoor seating, outdoor seating, and I'm pretty sure it's the only brewery in town that's got a little fire, uh, fireplace. So, you know, you can go there and have your beer right by a fire and talk with your friends. So I, I highly recommend it. It is a very nice facility. And... Um, the featured beers tonight is Sun Trip, which is a Belgian wit beer, and it won the silver medal at the Great American Beer Festival this fall for Belgian beers. And um, it's a very nice beer. Uh, and I, I actually have to say, this is the first beer that I got before I had tried it. I had gone over there last night, and I tried a bunch of beers, and I decided I was going to get a sour, because we haven't ever had a sour here. And then as I was uh, talking with the brewmaster there, and, and I was saying, well, we're going to get a sour for the second beer, and he, he, he looked a little dubious about that. He said, well, you know, people, people love or hate sours, and, you know, it might not be that popular. You might want to try something else. And um, I was looking at the different beers, and I tried a couple, and I, I basically I was vapor-locking. I was like, oh, I, I can't make a decision. And he said, this one won a silver medal. And I thought, all right, we'll go with that. And I hadn't actually tried it. So I apologized for that. But then I tried it, and I find it quite, quite acceptable. It was, it was quite good. Uh, the other one is a Golden Haze. It's called Golden Haze, and it's an IPA. It's a New England IPA. And if you recall back a few months ago, like probably July or August, I uh, talked about New England IPAs. They're also, they first got started in Vermont, and they were sort of a New England response to West Coast IPAs. So the West Coast IPAs tend to be higher in alcohol, more uh, bitterness, you know, more, more bitterness units, sort of uh, extreme IPAs, let's say. And so New England decided they were going to make it different. So they went with uh, more like dry hopping and using different hops and trying to get more citrusy and fruity flavors in the beer. And they are hazy beers because they also use wheat in the brewing process, so it comes out hazy. So Golden Haze. One, I like the name Golden. This is Golden, right? And it, it's a really good beer. Uh, I really uh, was impressed with the Golden Haze, with the New England IPAs every time I've had one. And the first one I had was at New Terrain. And today... They had 16 beers on tap, and they had a, a number of non-beer options as well. They're also on Monday nights inviting musicians to come and play in their tap room, and last night they had the Fireside Pickers. They were really pretty good. Um, I, I quite enjoyed it. And if you want to go there and you don't want to have glass growlers, they will can your beer while you watch, while you wait. And this is one of their one-quart cans, which is a pretty hefty can. And you'll notice this one is empty. Um, when, I, when I had some uh, house guests, we went over there a few times, and they got a bunch of cans of beer to bring back home, and this is one of them. This is Hopatropica, which we had Hopatropica in May when New Terrain was the featured brewery in May. Um, but anyway, it's, they can it right in front of you, so they fill the thing up, and then they put the lid on, and it's, it's kind of uh, it's worth the price of the beer just watching them can it, in my mind. So that's it, and I will turn this back over to Whitney, 
and uh, you know, patronize our local breweries. We got plenty of them. I especially appreciated the part where the beer ambassador acted surprised about the emptiness of the vessel. I wonder how that happened. <laughs> this guest that we have tonight is coming from very far away, maybe the farthest away of any guest we've had. And I learned about this person from someone who has known her most of her life. And my wish for everyone in this room is to have someone tell a story about you, like the story Elizabeth told me about Joyce. It is spectacularly moving to hear someone describe someone they've known and admired through many phases of life. And that is the case, and I think for good reason. Joyce is a person who has had different passages and different paths, and she's followed them out with passion. And I don't think she needs much introduction, because she's going to share some of that with you. And um, anything you miss, Elizabeth can fill in the blanks. I'm going to bring up Joyce Tanyan. Thank you for coming. Let me, let me not block this. Um, okay, good evening. Hi. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. I've been having a great time in, um, in Golden with Elizabeth, uh, my long, long, long-time friend and her family. And I've, bec- I've come to realize how amazing you guys are. You're so warm and welcoming and hospitable, and I really appreciate that. And so um, I want to share a bit of my story with you. I'm going to flip just directly to my title because I live in the midst of all of this in Kenya. Warriors, water or lack thereof, and thirsty beasts. And what we've been doing for the last 10 years is trying to solve these issues. It's a little geography lesson. Everybody probably knows where Kenya is. Africa, right? East Africa or West Africa? East, that's right. We're actually, um, it's the, the equator goes right through Kenya. And so the part of Kenya where I work in is in south, southern Kenya, and it's south of the equator. And the little red box there is the area where I work, and it's the area um, where Mount Kilimanjaro is. Now, when I came to Denver, I flew here the other day, and the first thing you see as you're approaching are the mountains, Right? The beautiful white-capped mountains. And when I first was in, um, in Kenya for the first time in 2006, I did a water walk where we walked 150 miles to raise money for girls' education. And I walked from a place called, well, very close to Nairobi, all the way down to Amboseli. And as you approach Amboseli, what is rising there out of the distance? Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, Kilimanjaro actually means God's mountain, and the Maasai call it Odonyo Oibor, and that means white mountain. And of course, it's so white and magnificent. And of course, the whiteness is a glacier, and sometimes it's snow. I've actually seen snow falling, you know, the, the, the clouds closing and then parting again, and the snow is piled up there, and it's so beautiful. Um, and what I didn't know on that first approach was how important Mount Kilimanjaro is for the water supply for a whole area, all the way into Tanzania, all the way down towards Mombasa. Of course, all the people living right around the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro, both on the, on the Tanzanian side and on the Kenyan side. The Tanzanian side, they're lucky. They're the windward side. The Kenyan side is the leeward side, so it's more dry. And these guys like it there because there's water. And also in the highlands of Mount Kilimanjaro, plenty of trees to eat. So a lot of people, probably some of you, have traveled to Kenya. Anybody? Okay. Now, let me, let me, okay. Why did you travel? Why? Yeah. I always wanted to go because of the wildlife, but that was not even the best thing there. It was amazing, but... But, but the first thing that brought you, yeah. okay. Anybody else? Another reason? Uh, okay. Right. The time for the Great Migration. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. No, it's magnificent. And, and to see the Messiah, see the Messiah yeah. So, right, so they're all, that's all, those are, the, that's, those are the stakeholders, the players in the environment 
um, where we're working. And um, of course, as you spend more time there, you get to see, you get to learn about all the dynamics that are at play. For us, we love to see, we love to see the wildlife, but it's easy for us because they're not our neighbors, right? You don't share a water point. You know, you're not all going for the same, you know, you're not grazing on the same property. So it's actually, it's, it gets tricky. Um, this is just a, a simple, uh, it's a map of the vegetation in, on Mount Kilimanjaro. As you can see, this side towards uh, the bottom of the map is actually the, the Tanzanian side. And the other side where the red box is, that's the area where we work. And um, it actually changes as you, as you come down in elevation from the mountain, the climactic zones change very quickly. So, for example, the place where we usually stay um, a place called Loitokdok is actually the same exact elevation as Denver. I, I looked it up today. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. So, so it's like almost, it's a, more than a mile high. And then as you, so they do rain-fed agriculture there at 6,000 feet. And as you drop down, you get things that look like this. So it becomes dry very quickly. There's a very distinct dry season and a wet season. Um, this past year uh, was a very dry year. It's just started raining um, in the last couple of weeks. And it has been looking like this with the dust flying everywhere and animals and people on the move. And Ambicelli, as you come down into the basin, only gets 13 uh, inches of rain per year. And I think... This area is actually kind of pretty close, right? About 15? That's about 15, 16, yeah. And so, of course, the wind and the heat and the temperatures, they cause this. And then uh, I remember the first time I was down there in Ambicelli, the wind and the dust were blowing and everything, 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 everything is full of dust and your face. And then you realize, but hey, there's no water. How do people stay clean? Right? Does anybody like being dirty? Okay, now in this, because it does have very strong rainy seasons, very brief, you get serious water moving, right? They walk in, they, it moves through these crevasses and gorges. And this is what it does because there's very fine volcanic soils, it cuts out these trenches. And so you have a serious erosion problem there. Um, they try to do, we, one of the projects, kinds of projects that we do, we do um, wet season projects. For, so we collect the, um, the, the rainwater, these things called water pans. And it's basically just, just like a big pond. And all the animals love it. They get in there and they drink, the big animals and the small animals. Here we've got Maasai goats and sheep. And then also... What's very common in the area are boreholes, and that we've been responsible for drilling a lot of boreholes in that area, and it is very helpful for dry season water use. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the area around, uh, around Mount Kilimanjaro does have a lot of groundwater, so the, the cloud forest and the condensation from that, plus the rain and the, the snow and the melting of the glaciers, it all percolates into those volcanic rocks, and it does come out in different places in the area. This is Ambicelli National Park, and I love this photo because you can just see the gangs all here. The lions in the foreground, the elephants, um, there's, there's wildebeest back there, and zebras. And, you know, it's the green beautiful, delicious place to be. And so that's why, I mean, Ambicelli National Park was formed because of this, of these, of these features. It's a place where the springs pop, pop up and create this, this green, lush, delicious area. The Maasai people used to live there, but guess what? They got forced out because they wanted to invite us to come and do tourism there and spend money so that um, it could provide some help for the economy of Kenya. Um, it does mean that um, there are conflicts about water and pasture. So in the, it is actually, I mean, I've seen men and their cows be arrested by KWS because of grazing in, in drought times. This is the only green in the whole area. And of course, everybody wants it. But then there's a bit of a conflict there because tourists don't really want to see Maasai cows. They want to see giraffes and elephants. That's right. So that's just a fact. That's a sort of um, trying to do that balancing act of all those different interests, sharing scarce resources. So 
We also have a lot of giraffes down there. Okay, and this is, this, the person who can name this animal gets a prize. Close, close, same family. Kudu, no, but they're a little bit, they're, these are the biggest ones. What? No, no, no. Last, last, last chance. This is an eland. Yep. So they're very beautiful. And of course, you have to have more elephant pictures. Okay, now, one of the reasons why these amazing treasure of wildlife has been preserved in Kenya is because of the lifestyle of Maasai people. Now, they never hunted wildlife. They live side by side with them. For them, it's um, actually taboo to eat a lot of that meat. They don't eat it. They have, they have their own goats, their own sheep, and their own cows, and they eat them. But they do not generally um, hunt them for food. Now, these are, these are warriors. And these are actually the police, the policemen, the security of the Maasai community. And so um, they really try to keep the community safe. They try to solve the conflicts that happen around these shared resources. And of course, with the wisdom of the elders there to, uh, to cool down the hot tempers that arise when conflicts go unsolved, like for example, elephants destroying water points and um, you know, breaking tanks and those kinds of things, people get very, uh, people get upset. So these are Maasai ladies. And this is really one of the reasons for all the work that, that we're doing. Um, when I first started in Kenya, I think I mentioned that I was there supporting a girl sponsor, uh, um, a program that sponsored girls for their education. And um, I, I didn't really know what life was like for women there until I saw um, in the, the drought time of 2006, you know, the, the carcasses of the, of the dead animals, the women walking long distances, and realize that actually one of the main causes for girls not, going to, not getting to go to school is because women have this huge burden of carrying water every single day. And in the drought time, it actually gets worse because water points dry up, right? They have to go even farther. And I just thought, well, how can you, I mean, how are you going to solve the, the girls' education problem if this fundamental issue is still just hanging there. And so um, we started actually with a, with a, I remember calling my dad saying, Dad, you know I'm here for these, for these girls, but the real problem is clean water. Do you think we can do something to help? And of course my dad said yes, because he's a faithful person and he believes that it's right to help people, and that's where I got it too, right? Learning from my parents' example that we can, if we see a problem, we should try to help. Simple as that. Not so simple, but we did, we did see it as that simple. We, we, we were faithful that if we shared this with other people like you, that your hearts would be moved and to try to, you know, we know how to solve these problems. We know at least, let's say we know there's always all these cultural layers, but getting water to people, we know how to do that, right? And so that's what we started to do. We started one project at a time. It's a very grassroots work that we're doing, um, really raising money from one project to the next. And it's really to help these women. All of these women are illiterate. I know, because I teach them. I mean, I know this lady, she's one of, um, she's in one of our, our livestock farmer training programs. And um, so I know that 98% that of these women in this picture are illiterate, but they don't want that for their daughters. They don't want that, right? So they want their girls to go to school because they want their girls to, like, bloom the way they didn't have the chance to bloom. But at least because the water is there, these women have more of a chance. So instead of, let's say, carrying our uh, water, like this is a place called, this was our very first water project in a place called Imisigio. Those are the ladies that made me this jacket. So this is the ceremony where they gave me this, and they gave my dad this. And now, the, the place where they used to have to carry water from was, it, it was over the border in Tanzania. This is the Kilimanjaro Highlands. And so every day they would walk four hours, wait. And they would wait. And then they would get their water on their backs and they would walk home with it. And now, 45 minutes. Grisha. 
They're done. They go home. Next thing. What is it? They do farming. They have small businesses. They do beadwork. They have joined our livestock farmer group. So now we have, um, in this last round of training, we've got eight, eight of our 12 groups are women's groups because they want to learn. Right? They haven't, been, they haven't had the chance. Okay, so Maasai are pastoralists. They keep cows, and I call it the cow account because this is what how families pay for everything in life. They pay for food. They, they take it, a cow to the market. They sell it, and the dad buys a sack of maize, a sack of beans, cooking oil, sugar, tea leaves. And then when it's time for school fees, they sell cows, and they send their kids to school. So it's very important that the cows are healthy, and that they are sellable in the market. So this is, this is a gentleman walking with his cows after grazing a whole day. Okay. So now this is the situation that we're in right now. This is a picture that I took from 2009, but this is actually what it is right now in Kenya. Um, so can you imagine if you're the, if you're the dad and you're, you, you and, or you, you know, the parents are sitting together and like, well, this is what our cow account is looking like right now. So the cow that used to be, let's say, valued at you know, $250, this is a $9 cow, right? Or maybe you know, a, a $15 cow. And then... This is also what happens. I mean, this is all over the place. So we've, one of the reasons why we um, actually branched out into teaching farmers is because the water projects that we do rely on the income that they get from their cows. So, for example, um, we have an operate, we're operating a borehole, and we have to go buy fuel. They collect the money from the members according to the number of cows that they have. And that's how they have the cash flow to pay the operator to do the um, maintenance and repairs of the machine. And guess what happens when this happens to your cows? The, the water gets switched off, actually. And so we wound up um, having a lot of community meetings in 2000, and, oh, actually 2010, after that drought ended, to find out, you know, what happened in the drought? Were there any winners? Were there any losers? And what, and what could have caused those different, those different outcomes? And we found out that there are things that we could teach, uh, and we worked together with the Ministry of Livestock to develop a training program to teach farmers how to manage the drought cycle, how to do the, keep their livestock as a business. They, they now are, are doing small budgets so that they can manage their expenses in the, in the fattening season. Um, we also work with the, the veterinary department, um, and they have been teaching a lot about disease prevention and control for livestock. Because a strong, um, you know, a healthy animal going into to drought will last a lot longer than a cow that has lots of tick-borne diseases and so forth. And so we've had a lot of success. And in fact, that lady that I showed you, um, back in the picture where the, where the ladies were dancing, she's a member of one of our livestock groups and both of her sons. And they, as a family, decided to build a grass store. And now she's able to have enough grass for her cows so that she always has milk for her family because they've been doing that kind of planning. Um, so this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of work that we've been doing. And when people are doing better with their livestock, they're much more able to be conservation partners. Right? So if they're, if they're prospering, and it's much easier to talk to them about you know, conserving the wildlife. People are just in a better frame of mind. Oh, that makes sense. We're, we're okay. And not only that, but some of the conservation groups there have been actually sponsoring um, the, the, the children of the, of the families there to go to, to, go to school and even um, go to university in fields like conservation and wildlife management. And so we're seeing things are developing in the area, and it couldn't happen at a better time because it's getting hotter. <laughs> there's, there's more people there. There's a lot of land use issues that need to be solved. And so for people who are, who are prospering, they can, well, getting closer to prosperity, it's much easier for them to be, be, be thinking clearly and in a more level-headed way to preserve this treasure that they have there 
you know, both in the land, the beauty of the landscape, the wildlife, and also finding a way to really preserve their, their lifestyle, you know, their culture. Um, Maasai people, as you know, are very, they're very proud. They're, they're holding on to uh, their ceremonies. And, um, you know, it's really, there's, it's, a, it's a, an interesting time that, that we're living in. Uh, in, in that community, and um, luckily, also the water projects that we've been doing have been helping a lot, so that families are healthier and more kids are going to school. And it'll be interesting to see what what develops over time. Um, I don't know how much. How am I doing on time, Mr. Frank? I'm good. Okay. I don't want to. I don't want to go over. Um, so the kinds of projects that we do, we do boreholes. So our wells are mostly between, let's say, 200 feet to 750 feet. And um, it's a serious community resource, right? So it needs to be managed. And um, I, I did mention that the community is largely illiterate, right? So you're, um, all of our projects are managed by the community members. They form water committees. They op- open a bank account. They're registered officially with the government, and they are in charge of the project. We train the water committees to manage that. And imagine, you know, um, one, one thing we always do is we look for the leaders. Like, who can, we, who can we mentor? Who shows that ability to talk in front of people and to convince people they're there? So, you know, as we start, we always look for community buy-in. So we always require a, com- a, co- a contribution from the community to make sure that they're on board. And so the, the leaders kind of show them the, their faces then because they can go talk to people. Come on, you've got to be part of this. You know, c- help them see a different future and convince them to, to make an investment in this development in their area. And it really works. Sometimes it takes time. We don't move that quickly. And one of the reasons is it takes time to build that consensus to really, to really have, have, have people have a vision of something different in their future. This is going to be a future with water and a new life of transformation for you and your family and your children and generations. Because these boreholes go in and they keep working and they keep working. And they work especially when the leaders there in the community have, have really you know, ingested it and, 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 and are, are part of the management of it. And so that's what we've been doing. And I'm happy to say that of our 17 water projects, they're all functioning. And um, I know that's not, I mean, you probably have heard the term white elephant project. I don't know if that's a common term to any of you. But white elephant project means a lot of money was spent, and then two weeks later you go back and nothing's working. But they had a party, and the leaders showed up, photo op, but then it never really helped the community. But none of our projects are like that. They're working, people are benefiting, and every day more than 50,000 people are drinking water because of us. And so um, that's really something that we're, we're proud of. And uh, this is actually our 10th year anniversary for Water is Life Kenya. Um, we're a registered nonprofit here um, in the state of Delaware, which is my home state. And, um, yeah, it's, it's never, you know... It, we never thought we would be this far, but it's really because people take it on board and they see that we're delivering transformation on the ground. And the communities themselves are, you know, I have, we have a long list of people who want us to come and do water projects. And we're able to tell our, our, the people who are supporting us that this is, you know, that, we're, that your support, your hard work, your hard, let's say, your hard-earned support goes directly to the ground, which is what everybody wants, right? That you know that in a couple of months, when the water project comes, women and children and men will be drinking and their livestock, and the waterborne diseases will go down, and people, the kids will be in school, and things will become better, especially for the women. Um, so I don't know. We're doing question in two minutes or something like that? Oh, I'm done? Okay. I got the, I got the, I get the yank off. Um, well, but you, let me just say one thing. We, um, one of the ways we support ourselves as we, and also the families that we work with is through beaded handicrafts. We actually uh, are fair trade certified water is life beads. And we work with the Maasai women. And also we have a paper bead uh, workshop where we make beautiful things out of, 
recycled paper. Like this is one of the, our new handbags that are decorated with recycled paper. You guys are welcome to come up and take a look at it. We do have a website um, where we sell these things. The profits go to more water projects. And all of these things have been paid for and the people are enjoying the fruits of that income. So I just want to thank you. We do have a sign up, an email sign up sheet. We'd love to be in touch with you. Be sending you our, our um our, e our newsletters, and we do have some of our newsletters here, which you're welcome to come up and uh, grab, and I'd be happy to answer questions when you guys all have had a lot, of, a lot of beer and snacks. So thank you very much, and thank you so much to our hosts. Thank you, Frank. Uh, thank you, Whitney. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, everybody who's working back there in the kitchen. Thank you, Elizabeth, for, connect for connecting me in the first place. And um, that's it. Yeah, thank you so much. So 15-minute break, and we'll come back for questions and answers then at 7, what, 20? Or, uh, yeah, 7, 20. <laughs> Let, let's come to order and turn it over for questions and answers. Um, are you? Are we using solar pumps? To date, we have not used them. Okay. Next. No. No, it's actually really, we tried to do it on several projects, and we consulted with the community because you don't want to do something that they completely oppose. And one of the things that they said was, these panels will get stolen, and it's happened before. And so then, you, you, I really, we really want to do it. We're just, uh, we just got a lot of water in a place called Cuckoo, and, um, and we're hoping to, that maybe this would be a place where we can do solar pumps. So thanks for that push. I appreciate it. This is a lovely lady. Um, when initially you got you involved and you know, you're staying involved, um, what, what, you were just sitting around talking about water is life? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, gosh. The, the whole the back story? Well, um, I was working in New York uh, I had, on, a, on a career as a singer. And um, I was there on September 11th. And um, basically, in, uh, after absorbing all of that and trying to make sense of what happened in, in New York City and that act of terrorism, I really decided to commit my life to doing something helpful. And that's really what kind of got me started. I did a lot of volunteer work around New York. I wound up volunteering in, uh, going to, as a volunteer to Kenya in 2006, and that's what started it all. But it really started out with just saying, no. We need, to be the, we need to be the change, and we need to be, I wanted to use my life's energy to help others. That's it. That was the decision that got me going in this direction. So, yes. So the, um, like in California, in the beginning in our, our uh, plains, the drawing of the water is actually lowering the historic water tables. Is there any concern with the water projects there? I mean, right, right now, I mean, it's been such a short time that all this water is being extracted, but of course, it will, it must um, influence it. I mean, it is, the, 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 the area is still pretty, you know, the, the villages are pretty far apart from each other, but then there's some areas where there's, you know, the, the population is, um, the concentration is growing. Also, because of the Kilimanjaro um, springs, they are doing some spring irrigation pumping that water. And then that's where I can see the problem. It's, very, it's going to be um, worsening in that area because they kind of do uncontrolled extraction and they're not paying for the water. So that always kind of leads to uh, overuse. But it's, I mean, it's something that I'm sure down the line, probably not too far down the line because the, the, um, the glacier is shrinking on Mount Kilimanjaro. There's no doubt about that. Uh, to be continued... Uh, yeah, I mean, yes. What, what, what's the sort of yield of one of those? Um, the one that we just drilled in Kuku 
was 51,000 liters per hour. So that's, I think, about 13, is that about 13,000 gallons? Something like that. So it's a very productive borehole. Um, we've, that's, no, that's high. That's, that one was like, thank you. Um, we've definitely had much lower ones than that. Like down to, uh, in liters, 12,000 liters per hour. I think that was the, one of the lowest ones that we've done. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, we have a partnership with the government uh, through the Ministry of Livestock and Agriculture. And so that's how one of the ways that we interface with them. We designed this program with, with them, and they are also, their extension officers are, are trainers. And so the time period where that happens, which is um, June through October, we're with them every day. We go into the field, we teach. We come back, so we have a good relationship with them, and also the local elected leaders. We also work with them, like the member of parliament. Um, we're off, we often sit together and say, "Okay, where are the problem areas? You know, where have you have you gotten word of um, you know remote areas where they have serious water issues?" Uh, so that's that's one. And the other NG, the, on, on the side of NGOs in the area. Um, we have a good relationship with some of the conservation NGOs, like the uh, Ambicelli Elephant Research Pro- Program, and also IFA, which is um, a conservation group down there. But there's some, there's a sort of a collective of local NGOs, and sometimes we have we have meetings where we discuss, you know, all the stakeholders. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Yep. We test it as soon as we pump it, and then we keep on going back, like every, you know, every year to check the water quality. Yeah. We don't have we the only the issues that we've had uh, in the past is some of it's salty. So I mean, just really like you know sodium chloride and then fluoride occasionally, but that's only that only happened once. And often after use, it actually it actually flushes out. No, go go ahead. I don't. Yep, exactly. Yes. Well, they they do wait in line, but there's um there's a there are community taps. That's what usually what we do. We have usually have a, a bank of taps, and the women come and then they they fill their five gallon containers. Yes. Well, I founded Water is Life in 2007. So I went originally with, um, I first went as a tourist. So that was just, you know, whoa. And then um, and then 2006, I went as a volunteer with another, the organization that sponsored Girls for Their Education. And I worked with them for a year. And that was really what exposed me to the, you know, the, long, the, the women and the, and the burden that they had. And was that your biggest surprise? Like, I'm wondering. Yeah, sure. I mean, yes, I mean, just, just think, I, I mean, I always, I always think to myself, what would I do or what wouldn't I have been able to do? I, you know, it it's just changes everything. You know, it changes everything. Not have, I mean, if, you, if you're, okay, you have to have water every single day, right? So think about it in the morning, what you do. And if your taps aren't working in the morning, if you don't have water, Ugh, right? I can't flush. I can't brush. I can't. What are you going to do? But that's their that's their life, right? So their whole day is around water. So whatever all you guys are doing in your lives, put it on hold. Go ca- go carry water. That's what it is. I mean, that's so I, so I often think of, you know, myself, I've been really lucky to be able to go to school as a woman. I mean, I know that sounds weird, but in Kenya, they don't all go. Um, to be able to develop my talent, I'm a singer. I have that passion. I still sing, but I mean, if you're if you're carrying water every day, do you get to think about your talent? It's such a it's such a you know like, I mean, and now the women, it's like I really, it's like they're blossoms like this when there's no water, and then, you know, so like one lady who's I mean I know very well. She's um, a beneficiary of our first water project. She's a member of one of our livestock groups. Um, she was able to go back to school 
as an adult with her own daughter in high school and get her GED, and now she's in college. I mean, she had that dream, you know, which she got squelched because she was married off without any choice by her dad. You know, here's, you know, the cows, the dowry was paid and a girl had to go and she was the one. And now she's in school. You know, she's, she's developing herself. She, she's, a, she's a role model and an inspiration for her neighbors. So to me, it's like if I, if I multiply that, you know, and the women and, and the way they can be the leaders in their areas and, and help their families and just all, all of those things, it's really it's exciting. You know, so that's, that's it. I think when I, when I was able to, you know, kind of see that big picture, you know, and feel what it must, try to feel what it must feel like to like, I mean, they don't, people don't even know what they're capable until they have the time to th- sort of think about it. Hmm. You know? Well, they are happy because the cows get water, right? And, and, and right? I mean, come on. That's what it is. I mean, they are. It, I mean, the, the, the dynamic certainly has changed. You know, so some families are, are it, it, it is really, um, it's different. But I would say generally that, you know, if the cows are healthier and people are happier and healthier, I mean, I'm sure there's some, you know, the inner workings of the family dynamics, I'm sure have, they've shifted. But, you know, there's also uh, things that are re- they've been exposed a lot, and they, have, they know female leaders nationally on the Kenyan, you know, on the Kenyan national level. And so they know that this is, this is the way. But, um, but if I think of the visual that really shocked me was just having a meeting and all the men sitting on this side and all the men, women sitting on that side facing out. And that's what they, I mean, that was, you know, that's because that's, they didn't feel like they had the right to really be in the discussion. And that's changed, that dynamic. You know, we're, and, and I was kind of like, now I just sit over there. I'm like, if you guys are going to sit over there, then I'm sitting over there too. And then as soon as they, they realize that I'm going to sit with them, they all come closer because they don't want me to be, you know, they want me to be in the middle. So it's just kind of, I mean, we, one of the first things that we did was actually have women's public speaking, like a little bit of public speaking, because we realized that if women are on the water committee, and they should be, because this is their water, that in a meeting they weren't even comfortable talking. So, you know, we just had to have like, a, we had to have some workshops where it's just like, okay, what's important to you? Let, tell us about it just so the people would get, they would be comfortable speak, you know, standing in front of each other and speaking. So that was, that was very interesting. But now I'm used to it. Now I have, like, tricks, you know. So anybody else? Yes? So you started by yourself. Yeah. How big are you now? Well, I started myself. Yeah, yeah. I started with myself and a Kenyan called Joseph LaRasha, who we really um, worked, started it together, and then also with my dad and my mom. So that was kind of, you know, here and then in Kenya. And now I have a team. It's still a small team because we really don't want to have a lot of overhead. We want all the money to get to projects. Um, I've got five people in Kenya. They're all Kenyans. And then we have uh, one full-time person in our office and a lot of volunteers. Too bad you guys don't live closer. You could come and help us. But anyway, we do have really a lot of uh, great volunteers of all ages, like kids and they come and help us, especially with the beads. They, um, well, they, I will be getting some. I mean, they do have um, a, a group of volunteers uh, t- and a team from Engineers Without Borders. They're going to be coming. We're working on a project together. And then I do, I've had some smaller groups of people come to visit and do some things. But mostly they help with, um, like, events that we're having. We have an annual water walk. So with those are the, you know when we when we have the events and also all the beads the bagging and the tagging and all that stuff we have a, we have volunteers helping us with that. Yeah. You said that you helped about fifty thousand. Yeah. I'm just curious how is that dispersed geographically like over how much space? Um, that's like um, I'd say like three hundred, four hundred square miles. I'd say. Yeah. So a big chunk of um, that part of, like, the, kind of the box on the map, if you do want to move. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, sorry. Here we go, here we go. I know, you guys are going to have nightmares about it. Here we go. 
Happy cows. <laughs> yes, live cows walking. They do, but I mean, you have to have enough pasture, right? So it always there's always a balance. Is there enough grass? Is there enough water? So people are are, are moving. Um, like I'm sure people, because of the some of the areas have had rain, people some people are able to go back home. Um, the, the the you mean the whole process of, of drilling a borehole and those kinds of things? How long does it take, and then just how long does it last? Okay, right. So, well, uh, the t- taking like for example, it'll take a few months to set up everything to build the relationship with the community and get them on board. The work itself, I mean, if you've done the fi- if if you have all the money, you can go fast. Um, the drilling is actually really quick. It's usually pretty quick, like in a couple of days. Then you have to you have to do test pumping. Then you also do the water quality test at that time. Then you have to do, um, you know, equip it so a pump and power source, and then build any kind of water storage, latrines, all those kinds of things, cattle troughs. Um, and then, I mean, so far they're all still working. The thing that would break down, I mean, the thing that would be, um, we've, our first project actually we had to um, <clears throat> give them another generator. But so that's the kind of thing, those things, it's a machine, so it breaks down. Yeah. yeah. More questions? Yes. No. Yeah, okay. That would be great. I mean, I'm serious. It's, you know, we have, I mean, we have geologists over there, but they're not, they don't spend a lot of time doing those things. So, so come on over. I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to come and pick you up at the airport anytime. No, I'm serious. I mean, that's what I do. Like, the happiest thing that happens to me is when I get visitors. So... Seriously, because like sometimes I'm over there for for many months at a time, so yes. You mentioned you worked with the ministry from like April until October. Yeah. Is that the wet season? Or the dry season? <clears throat> it's a cattle. It's a cattle thing. So um, it's a cow. Yeah, the cows. The, we, we target the cheap buying season in November. So expecting the rains to come, the cows are low price in the market. Um, just before the rains really come, that's the lowest part. So if you back up from that, we have like a three-month training program, and then we give a loan. And so there's a period, like uh, October is the time of um, kind of seeing if, which groups are, are uh, whatever you call it, oh my gosh, my brain, um, are, are ready to receive the loan. And then, so we start training them, the new groups, we start cha- training them in July, August, and then, and then we do the kind of the paperwork part of it and the ceremony of giving the loans in October. And then from November, depending on the season, they may go buy cows for fattening. So that's 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 why that season. Yeah. Do they use the water only for drinking with the cows, or do they do any uh, uh, irrigation for the pasture lands at all? Um. Okay. What's more, okay, this, I always think of like Oryx, I think of the elephant that slept in our tomato patch. So, so they love, you know, when it's a dry season, everything green is, you know, all the animals want to eat it. And so you have a very serious problem of fencing and keeping wildlife out of your tasty green food irrigation areas. And so it's possible, but you have to be ready to invest in fencing and, um, you know, so, I mean, it is an elephant corridor. It's a wildlife corridor. So they're there. And they, have, they, they love to eat. So, I mean, they do do irrigation, but there's always that running. Okay, the elephants, you know, there's always Kenya Wildlife Service is there, and the farmers are there. It's a big area of conflict. But the, air, the land is actually very fertile. Um, so they do. Sorry? Yes. Yeah. No, no, no. We're talking, okay, so we do, um, we've got like three branches of what we do. We deal with water, 
We do with livestock. And the water is basically, we do the fundraising for that. They have a small buy-in. The loans are to the livestock farmers who are part of our livestock as a business program. So those are two separate things. Yep. And it's a revolving loan. They pay it back. If they pay it back, they can get it again. And it's basically to, for them to um, implement the kinds of things that we're training them in in our, in our training program. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So it's no, there's no loan connected to the water at this point. Uh, okay, everything. If you're doing like a deep well from drilling, drilling is usually between 15 and 20,000, equipping the same. If you're doing full storage with a big water tank, let's say 30,000 gallons, which is we've done several of those, troughs, um, latrines, that's usually another like 25,000. So all of it is about 80. So if you're fully, the full package is about 80,000. Are there water projects like relief for wildlife too? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, we encourage our, our water project people to keep the troughs full at night so that they pump the water, that there's water all night long. And then as the elephants are moving, that's what they use. So that has really um, solved a lot of the conflict. So, and, and then also, of course, to keep it in good repair because anything that's leaking, they become very interested in that. Yep. Yeah. Elephants, they're super smart and super strong. They, I mean, they know the sound of the generator. That means water, right? And they know the water should be there for them. So if you don't, yes, yeah, you've got to pump the water for them. But you also have to commu- um, convince the community that that's a good use of their resources because they're the ones who are paying for it to be pumped. And so that's something that we've been working on too. Yep. Well, are we... Uh, we're okay. Thank you very much, too.